Hey, just a couple of quick announcements for you this morning. First, we would love for you to get more connected to the church. If you're here in person, just stop by the welcome table, talk to someone out there. They can get you all the information you need. And if you're watching us online, just click the button above to get more connected. You know, it takes a lot of people to make our services happen on the weekend. Everything from running the computers to running the cameras to running the lights, someone to fix Rod's hair. It just takes a lot of people and we need more help. If you're interested in volunteering with our production team, just stop by the booth on the way back, talk to Host Way, or you can sign up on our website. Middle school families and parents, I want to tell you about HMS Big Day. HMS Big Day is our hangar middle school big day of service, big day of fun, and it's coming up on October 16th. It starts out with some service projects, and this year we're really excited because we get to help some of the Afghan families who have made their way to the United States. After that, it's our epic scavenger hunt. Everyone loves this. It's very competitive, a lot of fun. Of course, there's tons of food that's involved in this. And then we have something called experiential worship. What that is, is worship without music. We teach kids how to worship God without singing. It's very important for them to understand that, and we love teaching that to them. And then finally, we're ending the night at Nova Ninja. Think American Ninja Warriors. It's an amazing place with trampolines and slides and all kinds of stuff to do. We've been there before. It is a blast. We hope that you will sign up your middle schooler. You can find the link to sign up in our weekly parent email that goes out. We are continuing our series on Exodus this week. I hope you enjoy the message. All right, yeah. It takes about 10 people to do my hair, and uh, we're, down in, uh, we're down in volunteers, so we need some help with that. doesn't take as many people as it takes to color Kyle's hair, but anyway, <laughs> so, so hold it. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't color I mean, I don't think, yeah, yeah, anyway, whatever. So um, this weekend is cool because we're going to end the service doing something that uh, we do a couple times a year, and, and that is dedicate uh, parents and children uh, to the Lord. And some of you come from different faith traditions and um, in, in terms of like Christian traditions, in, in terms of how children are dedicated, and some of you come from maybe backgrounds where infants are baptized as a kind of anticipatory faith of what God is going to do in their life. We don't baptize infants. Uh, we, we practice believers' baptism. But we understand the importance early in life to come around families and to come around children and to to commit them and co commit ourselves as, as parents and as a church uh, to the Lord to raise these children in uh, the, the fear of Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus Christ, the, the, the uh, awareness of what God has done uh, through Christ on the cross, all of that. And so uh, we're going to be ending the service with that. And, and so just be thinking about uh, these parents that are going to be coming forward at that time, be praying for them. It's a whole congregational thing, really. It's a reason that we do it in our worship service, and so uh, I encourage you to just kind of be in anticipation of that at the end of our service today. Okay, so we're in the fifth week of our Exodus series. It's called Journey to Freedom, and as I mentioned every week, that Exodus is all about the pursuit of freedom. It's all about getting set free from anything that would enslave us and keep us from living the kind of life that God has created us to live. Sometimes we are living 
an okay life, right? It's like it's not a terrible life, but it's not the life that God created you to live. And God wants to set you free to live the life that you were put on this planet to live. That's what salvation is all about. You know, whatever phrase you use to describe it, salvation, coming to Jesus, accepting Christ as your savior, like that's what salvation is. It is setting us free from anything that would enslave us and keep us from living the life that God has created us to live. Last week, we looked at the moment of deliverance when God parted the Red Sea, the people of Israel walked through on dry land to the other side, and once and for all, they escaped the life of slavery in Egypt. Now, you would think that with a book that is entitled Exodus, that this would like be the climax of the story, right? This would be Almost the end of the story. Here's this group of people. They're slaves in Egypt. Their greatest desire is to be set free from slavery. Now they've been miraculously delivered from anything having to do with Egypt. Egypt can't touch them anymore. They are on the other side of the Red Sea. They are free people. But it's not the end of the story. In many respects, it's really just the beginning of the story. They've been set free, but now they have to learn to live and to walk out that freedom that is already theirs. We talked a little bit about that last week, that sometimes we can be set free, but it takes time, it takes a process to walk out that freedom. And that's what this 40 years in the wilderness that they spend before they get to the promised land, that's what that is all about. Now, why are they in the wilderness? Why are they in the desert? Because God has led them there. From the very moment, think about the fact that from the moment they left the, the, the river, the Nile Valley, where the center of where Egypt was, until they've gotten to this point, they have been guided. God has been guiding them through a pillar of cloud through the day or by the day and a pillar of fire at night. And so they've been on this kind of divinely crafted GPS system that has gotten them to where they presently are. So they are in the desert. They are in the wilderness because God has led them into the wilderness. Like this 40-year journey is a part of what God is doing. Now think about that. Instead of going, they could have, this narrative could have been, they get set free from Egypt. They cross over the Red Sea. They, they are no longer controlled by Egypt, and then God takes them to the land that he has promised to them that is described as a land of milk and honey, like this incredible place. And they could have gone directly to the promised land, but it, he takes them on this 40-year journey. Now, if you've looked at a map of the Middle East, you know that it doesn't take 40 years to get from Egypt to Palestine, not even on foot. It didn't take 40 years because they, uh, they kept getting lost. It's not like God's GPS system was like going haywire. And, and sometimes when we talk about, the, we even talk about the Israelites in the wilderness and we talk about them wandering in the wilderness as if they were lost. Like as if God was guiding them and he kept taking wrong turns and ending up at the wrong place. And it was just like constantly, it was like rerouting, 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 rerouting. You know, it's like he never could quite get there. No, they're not in the wilderness for 40 years because they've gotten lost, because God doesn't know where he's taking them. There was intentionality to the 40 years in the wilderness. Those 40 years had a purpose. 
And you begin to see that purpose almost as soon as the Israelites cross the Red Sea. We're in chapter 16, starting in verse 1. Look what it says. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt, in the desert, the whole community grumbled. They, they grumbled a lot, grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat. We sat around pots of meat and we ate all the food that we wanted. It was like Ruth's Chris Steakhouse every day. It was fantastic. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Now, you would think that at this point, the Israelites would be the most grateful group of people on the planet because they have been set free from Egyptian bondage. They have seen all of these miracles that God has done, these, the working of these plagues and then the parting of the Red Sea, and now they are away from Egypt forever. You would think they would be the most grateful people on the planet as they have, and they would be, they would be celebrating the mighty acts of God, but they're not. They're grumbling. They're saying, we had it better in Egypt. We had all the food we could eat back there. We weren't worrying about starving to death back there. Life was really, really good back there. Of course, as we talked about last week, when they were actually in Egypt, they hated it. When they were actually in Egypt, they cried out to God to rescue them. When they were in Egypt, they knew how destructive Egypt was, but now they're longing for Egypt. Okay, here's the deal. This is the language of addiction. <laughs> that the language that the Israelites are using here is the language of addiction. When we're addicted to something, whatever it is, a substance, a behavior, an abusive relationship, whatever it is, when things get tough, when we find ourselves in the midst of some kind of desert experience, some kind of wilderness experience, we tend to block out all of the pain, all of the destructiveness of that addiction and convince ourselves that it might be a good idea to go back. And that's what's going on with the Israelites. They are addicted to Egypt. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way before, but the Israelites are addicted to Egypt. As horrible and destructive as Egypt was, they find themselves in the wilderness, and the first thing they want to do is go back. The first thing they want to do is to go back to the very thing that was enslaving their life. The first thing they want to do is to go back to something that they know was destructive, but at least it feels comforting in the midst of the wilderness to maybe go back. Here's the principle. We talked about it last week. You can get a person out of slavery in a moment. Like the Israelites crossed the Red Sea, and as soon as they crossed the Red Sea, in that moment, instantaneously, Egypt held no power over them. Like they were set free from the slavery in Egypt. You can get a person out of slavery in a moment, but it takes a process to get the slavery out of a person. And that's what this 40-year journey in the wilderness is all about. The Israelites have to learn to live to walk, to live out the freedom that is already theirs. In Deuteronomy 8, as the Israelites are about to enter into the promised land, 
And Moses is kind of reflecting on the 40 years in the wilderness because I think everyone probably is wondering, like, what was this 40 years all about? Like, was this just wasted 40 years? Could we have been doing something much better if we'd have gotten here quicker? Like, what was this 40 years all about? And Moses, before they enter into the promised land, Moses, like, stops and says, I want to give you some perspective on what you have just been through so you understand what God was doing in the midst of the wilderness. And here's what he says. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you, to test you in order to know what was in your heart. Like you didn't really understand your heart. And he wanted you to, he wanted you to get in touch with your heart. He wanted you to get in touch with your identity, with who you are, the, the, the children of God that you are. In order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known. To each of you, uh, to, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, Moses is saying, God had a plan for you in the desert. Like, don't lose sight as you get ready to go into the promised land, as you get ready to come out of the wilderness, you get ready to come out of the Don't lose sight of the fact that God had a plan for you in the desert. He wasn't just trying to get you out of the desert. He was using the desert to transform you. Um, truth be known, right? Our agenda, when we're in the midst of almost every wilderness experience, is how quickly can we get out of the wilderness? Like that's that's what we're totally, that's what I'm preoccupied with, right? Like when you're in the midst of the wilderness, you're in the midst of the desert, it's like, how quickly can I get out of the wilderness? And we basically have one prayer when we're in the wilderness, and we just pray it over and over and over again. God, get me out. God, get me out. God, get me out of the wilderness. And when that doesn't happen as quickly as we think it should, we tend to become disillusioned and disappointed with God. When I talk to folks, who are going through disillusionment, going through disappointment sometimes with God, oftentimes this is the issue, is that they're in the desert, they're in the wilderness, they're going through some stuff. They've been praying these, God, get me out of the desert prayers. Get me out of the wilderness prayer. And they're still in the wilderness and they're still in the desert. And it's like, where is God and what is God doing? And they become disillusioned with God and they become disappointed with God. Now, it's okay to pray for God to get you out of the wilderness. No one wants to go into the wilderness. No one wants to stay in the wilderness. Like, no, I, I don't know anyone I, that's healthy that would go, you know what, I'm in the wilderness, and I love it. Like, I love this pandemic that we went through over the, like, that no one wants to be in the wilderness, no one wants to go into the wilderness, no one wants to stay in the wilderness, but our prayers need to be about more than just, God, get me out. God, get me out of this difficult, painful situation. They also need to be about what God can do in our lives in the midst of the wilderness. They need to be about God, use this somehow. I don't want to be here. I don't want to stay here. I want to make that clear, but somehow use this to change me. Somehow use this to transform me. Somehow use this in a way where I don't come out of the wilderness the same person that I went in to the wilderness. God used this in some way in my life. Now, this doesn't mean that God creates wilderness experiences just so that we can 
you know, just so that we can grow or be transformed, right? In the Garden of Eden, there were no deserts in the Garden of Eden. There, were no, there was no wilderness in the Garden of Eden. Disaster, suffering, war, pain, loss, death, all of that, none of those things were a part of God's original design, and none of those things are a part of God's ultimate design either. In Isaiah 35, the writer of Isaiah is talking about what will happen when the Messiah returns. In all of his fullness, talking about the return of Christ, not knowing that he's talking about the return of Christ. And look at how he describes kind of where this is headed. He says, water will gush forth in the wilderness and there will be streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In other words, when Christ returns, he says, the desert will no longer be a desert. The wilderness will no longer be a wilderness. But until that day, until God fully restores the wilderness, God redeems the wilderness. God uses the wilderness to accomplish his purpose in our life. Sometimes just like with the Israelites, you have to go through the wilderness to get to the promised land because God's ultimate goal is to not, not to make us comfortable. God's ultimate goal is to transform us. Let me say that again. God's ultimate goal is not to make us comfortable. God's ultimate goal is to transform us. And that's where sometimes we lose sight of the activity of God because he is working to transform us, but in the midst of situations and circumstances that are not particularly comfortable, but his ultimate goal is not to make us comfortable. His ultimate goal is to transform us. But God doesn't just abandon the Israelites in the desert, right? He doesn't just say, okay, you're in the desert, you're in the wilderness, go learn what you need to learn. I'll be waiting for you on the other side. No, God is at work providing for them while they're in the desert. Look at what happens next. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. Now, there's no bread in the desert. Like the desert is a place that biological life can barely, you know, survive. Human life can barely survive. There's no bread in the desert. And so God says, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day, gather enough for that day, in this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. And on the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. And we'll talk about that because the Sabbath is the next day. So God provides this manna, this bread, to the people every morning. And it was this uh, manna, was this flaky substance that was kind of sweet and it could be used to uh, prepare things in lots of different ways. They could prepare it in a lot of different ways. And given the fact that this was all they were going to eat for 40 years, they probably got really creative with how they prepared it. Uh, do you remember the movie uh, Forrest Gump? Uh, for those of you under 35, Google that. Uh, you can find out about that. But uh, there was a character in the movie Forrest Gump, Bubba, uh, one of the characters that uh, Forrest meets, and uh, he tells Forrest about his dream about having a shrimping company, and then he begins to describe all the different ways that you can prepare shrimp. It's, it's like this stream of consciousness that he goes on, like all the different ways you can prepare shrimp. And he says, shrimp is the fruit of the sea. You can barbecue it, boil it, broil it, bake it, saute it. There's shrimp kebabs, 
shrimp creole, shrimp gumbo, pan-fried, deep-fried, stir-fried. There's pineapple shrimp, lemon shrimp, coconut shrimp, pepper shrimp, shrimp soup, shrimp stew, shrimp salad, shrimp and potatoes, shrimp burger, and shrimp sandwich. It's like this epic, epic scene in the movie. Now, that's probably, I don't know for sure, but probably the way it was with the manna, right? That probably the manna that God gave them, they boiled it, they broiled it, they baked it, they sauteed it, they pan fried it, they deep fried it, they stir fried it, they made manna kebabs, manna creole, manna gumbo, manna soup, manna stew, and manna sandwiches, which is two pieces of manna surrounding a delicious piece of manna. Like they did all kinds of stuff, right? Because this is all they ate basically, the little quail that God gave as well, but they ate manna for 40 years. Now, God doesn't just give them the manna. He gives them instructions on how to collect the manna and how to share the manna and how to distribute the manna. And God says it's a kind of test to see if the Israelites are willing to actually listen to God and to trust him. Like that's part of why they are in the wilderness is that they are learning to trust God. They are learning to rest in God's provision. They are learning to truly put their faith in God. And the first thing he tells them is that they're to collect the manna every day and only enough for like that day. Now, why do they have to go out and collect it every day, right? This is a miracle, first of all. The manna is raining down from heaven. So this isn't like your normal thing. You're not planting a seed, a crop's growing up, you're going out. No, this is a miracle. So since it's a miracle, God could have provided the manna in any way that he wanted. He could have provided it weekly. He could have provided it monthly. He could have just put it in their stomachs, right? Where they wake up in the morning and it's like, boy, I'm hungry. Oh, there it is. You know, and just like, just like, oh, he could provide it anyway, but he provides it where they have to go out daily and collect it. Why is that? Because God wants them to collect it every day because he wants them to enter into a moment by moment, day by day, trusting relationship with him. God wants them to trust that not only will he provide for them today, he will provide for them tomorrow and the day after that, 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 and the day after that. When Jesus told his disciples that when they pray, they should pray, give us today our daily bread, it was no doubt this story of God providing daily manna in the wilderness that was in Jesus' mind and would have been the first thing that the disciples thought of as well. Jesus was reminding the disciples and us that prayer is not just about getting what we need from God. Like if prayer was just about getting what we need from God, then we would pray this one-time epic prayer. God, provide for me everything that I need physically, financially, relationally, uh, in every area of my life, uh, for all of my life, provide everything that I need. I trust you. I believe in you. You are a providing God. Just take care of everything. Amen. Like that's the kind of prayer that we would pray if prayer was just about getting what we need from God. But prayer is about more than that. It's about creating this moment by moment, day by day, trusting 
relationship with God. Prayer is not just about going to God with your needs. It's about going to God as the thing you need. It's a huge difference. It's not just about going to God for your needs. It's going to God as the thing you need. When we're in the wilderness, we need God more than we need the things that God can give us. Manna is important, but the relationship with the one who provides the manna is even more important. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. God tells them to share what they have gathered. And this is part of the story that oftentimes we don't quite catch what's going on here. Here's what we're told in verse 16. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs, Take an omer for each person that you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by the omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. This is the part of the story that sometimes we meet. Here's what's going on. The people didn't just go out. Like sometimes we have this picture of the gathering of the manna is that the people are told, just go out and gather manna, bring whatever you need. And we have this sense that they just went out and they gathered the manna and then they just brought it back into their tent. And whatever, like this little private miracle between them and God. So they go out and they get the manna, they bring it back to their tent. It's what they need. Then they go out the next day, they get the manna and they bring it back to their tent. But that's not really what's going on. After they gather it, in order to kind of get this distribution that he's talking about here, after they gathered, they had to bring it together and they measured, they measured it out because every tent was supposed to get an omer of manna for each person in the tent. So if you had four people in your tent, you were to get four omers of manna. If you had six people in your tent, you were to get six omers of manna. Like it was distributed so that everyone got what they needed. That's why we're told that the one who gathered much, see, even though you're told to gather like what you need, people gather at different rates, right? Like the, the guy who gathers much, the six foot five inch guy who goes out and has massive hands and is gathering this manna is going to gather more than the little child that goes out and is gathering this manna. And what we're told is that the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little, like the little kid out there gathering, did not have too little. Here's the point. The manna they gathered wasn't just for the purpose of meeting their individual needs. It was gathered to meet the needs of the community. And that's so important for us to realize in the church. I have people all the time that tell me how much this church means to them. And, and how, um, how much... The message is meant to them, how, how much the worship is meant to them, how much being able to talk to someone, maybe a lay counselor or some of their small group leader, whatever has meant to them, like, like how much, you know, the, the church has meant to them. And I, and I love that. Those are awesome, awesome, awesome testimonies. I love those testimonies because they're basically testimonies about the manna they have received here. Like, I've received manna from the messages. I've received manna from the worship. I've received manna from other people who have spoken into my life and guided me and counseled me. Like, I've received all of this manna. I love that. We need to tell those testimonies. But here's the deal. Whatever manna you have received here is not just for you. It's for the community. It's meant to benefit the whole body. 
I get asked all the time, like, what I think the church is going to be like post-pandemic. Like, where, where do you think the church is going, and how do you think the church is going to be in, in the United States, in Northern Virginia, all that? Like, where do you think it's going? And it's basically, the question that's being asked, it would never be framed this way, but the question that's being asked is basically a question of, how do, how do you think, right, how do you think people are going to get their manna going forward? Like, will people get their manna online? Uh, or will they get their manna in person? Or will they get their manna in a hybrid of all? Like, how are people going to get their manna? And to be real honest, like, I have no idea. Like, you know, the question is like, what's going to be the, the, the most effective delivery mechanism for manna? That's really the question, like over the next 5, 10, 15 years. And I really have no idea. Like, it probably is going to be a combination of all the above. It's probably going to be delivery mechanisms we can't even think about now that will be on the scene in five years, 10 years, 15 years, all of that. Like there'll be lots of different ways that people get their manna. But whatever the primary delivery mechanisms are for the manna, this is what I know for sure. We cannot be a church that just gets our manna and takes it to our tent. Like we can't just become consumers of the manna. Whether you get your manna online, whether you get your manna by coming and being in person, whether you're part of an online small group or an online support group, or you're in, like however you get your manna, we cannot just become consumers of manna. We cannot simply get our manna and take it to the tent. We have to be a community that shares the manna. Whatever it is that God is doing in your life cannot just benefit you. It has to benefit the community. It has to feed others. That means that you are investing in the community. That means that you are serving in the community. That means that you are giving in the community. That means that this community is different because you're here. One of the questions I think that we should always be asking ourselves is like, how is this church different because I'm a part of it? How is this church different because I'm a part of it? If I stopped getting my manna here and I started getting it somewhere else, if I stopped getting my manna here and I started getting it in another church, or I stopped getting my manna here and I started getting it through online stuff, I stopped getting my manna here and I started getting it more through podcasts, whatever it is. Like, if I stopped getting my manna here, what difference would it make? Like, what impact would that have? Like, does the community benefit from my presence, or have I just become, without realizing it, have I just become a consumer of manna? That's what God is saying to the people of Israel. I don't want you to just be consumers of manna. Like, I'm providing you manna, but it is not just for you. It is for the community. Don't just be a consumer of the manna that I give you. Like, figure out how can I take the manna that God is providing and benefit the whole. And the third thing is this. God tells the Israelites to not gather the manna on the Sabbath. This is what he says. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until the morning. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there won't be any manna there because I want you to rest. I'm going to give you enough on the sixth day so that you don't have to gather 
on the Sabbath. Now, this is a huge lesson that God is teaching the Israelites. He's teaching them the importance of Sabbath rest. He's going to give them the law that talks about the Sabbath rest, but even before they get to Mount Sinai, even before they get there, he is reminding them of the importance of Sabbath rest. He is teaching them that they can stop doing and God will still provide. He is teaching them to trust in God more than they trust in their own doing, to trust in God more than they trust in their own performance. Now, I could teach a whole sermon, right? A whole series on this passage. But let me just say this. Sabbath rest is not just about taking a day off. It includes that kind of rhythm in terms of how we live our lives and taking days off and taking vacation and all of that. But it's not just about taking a day off. Sabbath rest is about disconnecting our performance from God's provision. Sabbath rest is about knowing that God is at work even when we are not. Sabbath rest is about not trying to perform our way into God's acceptance. Some of us have spent our whole life trying to perform our way. We grew up with parents, with situations. We were always trying to perform. We've taken that. We've applied it to our relationship with God, and we are constantly trying to perform our way into God's acceptance. Sabbath rest is not trying to perform our way into God's acceptance. Sabbath rest is about embracing our limitations and knowing that our limitations do not limit God. Sabbath rest is about establishing a rhythm of life that is sustainable and give God, gives God space to restore us, to refresh us, to renew us. So God tells the Israelites, don't gather any food on the Sabbath and trust that you will still have everything that you need. And God says the same thing to us. He says, don't think that you will ever be able to perform your way to a sense of security. Folks, we have folks, and maybe some of you are going through this, that you've, you've been on the treadmill so long that there is this sense that somehow, if you work hard enough, if you perform good enough, that somehow you can perform your way to a sense of security. And what God is reminding us here is that Sabbath rest is about embracing the reality that you cannot perform your way to a sense of security. So rest, God says, rest in me and trust that I will provide. Last thing, here, here's the kind of interesting thing about all this. So God gives all of these instructions. He gives this manna, an incredible miracle. He gives all these instructions about how they're collected and how they're distributed and all of that. And, uh, and just like us, sometimes uh, the people of Israel are obedient <laughs> to what God says to do, and sometimes uh, they're not. Look at verse 27. After he's given all this, after the miracle, after the provision, after the instruction, after all of that, it starts out with this word, right, which sometimes is reflective of us as well. Nevertheless, like after all the instructions, after everything that he says to them, after all of his provision, everything, nevertheless, some of the people went out on the Sabbath day to gather it. Nevertheless, they weren't obedient to God. Nevertheless, God said, you can trust me. Nevertheless, they didn't trust him. Now, you would think that God's response might be, okay, I gave you this manna. I gave you these instructions. It was a kind of a test. I just gave you a few instructions. But since you dis disobeyed my commands, like no more manna, like that's, like that's it. I'm done with providing for you. But that's not what happens. 
Look at verse 35. The Israelites, after everything now that's gone on, the Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. God wanted the Israelites to learn to trust him in the wilderness. It was part of what that whole experience was all about. And they did at some level. They grew in their trust of God. They, they grew in their willingness to rest in the provision of God. Like they grew in all of that, but their growth wasn't linear. Like sometimes it was three steps forward, it was two steps back. And then five steps forward and four steps back. But God never gave up. And he never stopped providing. And the same is true for us. Like our spiritual growth, God's wanting us to learn to trust him more, to rest in his provision, to not lean into our own accomplishments and all of that. And he's wanting us to grow, grow, grow in our trust and rest in him. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you're seeking to do that, that we grow, we grow over time. It's a process, but we grow. And sometimes it's three steps forward and two steps back and all of that, but we, we grow, but it's hardly ever linear. Like sometimes we rest in God's provision and we think, I got this. I got, got this. I finally learned what it means to rest in God's provision. And then something comes along and we start trusting ourselves and our performance more than we trust God and his performance. But just like with the Israelites, God doesn't give up on us. He just continues to provide for us. He just continues to provide the manna. His provision is unconditional, just like his love. His provision is unconditional. And, and here's the thing, like we, we talk about God's conditional love, we talk about God's conditional provision, and sometimes we misinterpret that to just mean that God doesn't care about the sloppiness of our lives. That God just, you know, he just kind of winks at our failures and says it's no big deal, and I know I said this was important, and this is how to best live your life, and you're not doing that, and but okay, no big deal. No, it's not. That God's love is, is not unconditional because he's not concerned about the way we live our lives. His provision is not unconditional because he's not concerned about the way we live our lives. It's unconditional because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Like the Israelites were not perfectly obedient to the Father. We are not perfectly obedient to the Father. But Jesus was perfectly obedient to the Father. And even though he was perfectly obedient on the cross, Jesus took on the curse of our disobedience so that we could take on the blessing of his obedience. Jesus on the cross entered in. Jesus on the cross died in the wilderness so that we could find life in the wilderness. Jesus on the cross did not just 
give us manna? Jesus became the manna. He became the manna that feeds our soul. He became the manna that gives us life. He loved us more than life itself. You know, in a minute, we're gonna bring parents up that will hold their children and dedicate them to the Lord. And I know that for every parent that will be standing up here, they love that child more than, than life itself. There's nothing they would not do for the child that is entrusted to their care. And yes, they want that child to grow and to become people of character and to reflect the essence of Christ in their life. They want that more than anything else. But no matter what the trajectory of that looks like, they will never abandon them, never turn their back on them, never stop loving them because that's the love of a parent. And that's the love that God has for us. A love that would rather go to a cross and die than to live separate from us. God, we're so thankful. We confess to you today that sometimes as you through your spirit is working in our lives that Sometimes we trust and sometimes we rest in your provision and sometimes we do not. But Lord, we give you thanks that your love supersedes all of that. That you never turn your back on us, you never give up on us, you are always working for us. And Lord, we pray that as we walk out this faith, as we learn to live out the freedom that is ours in Christ, that just like the Israelites, that we would, we would have this moment by moment, day by day kind of relationship of dependency upon you. That whatever manna it is, through whatever mechanism it is that you provide for us, that we will not simply go to our tent, that we will be willing to share it with others and that we will rest in your provision. That whatever it is that is representing for us this frantic attempt at somehow earning your favor or earning a sense of security or whatever it is, that we would know that we are more than what we do and that we can rest in you and that even when we are not working, you are We pray this in the name of Christ. And everyone said, amen.